You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was add 10 gallons? Add 10 gallons. My first thought was we got to put active children. Yeah, great. <laughs> Trucks on the, on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> <laughs> Which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems at a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of business. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L.com. All right, everybody. Welcome into the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. This is episode three and uh, if you're here for episode two, we appreciate you. If not, go back and listen to it. We had Mason Greeno on the phone from South Shore Gunite talk about all the intricacies of that business and, and what he does in his family-run business. And it was a great conversation. Uh, he's a great guy. Be awesome to work for. How invested he is in that business is, is definitely something to aspire to for sure. But we have a new guest on today. We have Jim Casilio from the Pennsylvania Aggregates and Concrete Association otherwise known as PACA, and he has a great perspective on what they do and the political aspect, you know, how the state and the federal uh, work together. Um, so I'm interested in hearing that. Um, and I have some good stories, has a fantastic amount of experience, so it'll be a great conversation and we're looking forward to it. But in the meantime, uh, we got the boys back. Paul, how's it going? Oh man, go get it. Excited to hear about this study you found. Yeah, for sure. Joey, how you doing? I'm doing excellent, fellas. Good. Yeah. And what we were just talking about before we went live here, a study I was just reading from MIT, essentially, um, with a little bit of help from the Concrete Sustainability Hub there at the Portland Cement Association. I think they also tapped the Ready Mix Concrete Research and Education Foundation. Principal research scientist was Jeremy Gregory there at MIT, and they came up with a, a study basically saying stiffer roadways will improve truck fuel efficiency. And we're thinking, you know, duh. But uh, they talked about the, you know, the amount of deflection that a truck will will build going down the road. And basically, it's an uphill climb the entire time, especially on uh, softer roadways being asphalt or, or even older roadways, you know, whatever it may be paved with. The, the vehicle is constantly in just a little bit of a ditch, a little bit of a lull there that it's you know, trying to get out of. So stiffer roadways could improve fuel efficiency and thus reduce carbon emissions. And you know, basically what they say that got me excited was we need to start paving more roads in concrete. And, it, you know, we can get into all the reasons why they don't currently. But, you know, at the end of the day, 
by changing, you know, just anywhere between two to 10 percent of roadways to quote unquote harder roadways. And in this case, certainly concrete, it'll it'll make a, a, about a half a percent difference in the amount of transportation related carbon emissions that are made today over the over the next 50 years, I think, is how far out the study went for. Now, they also said that you can make asphalt roadways stiffer as well with the addition of uh, fibers, carbon nanotubes, things of that nature. But, you know, as you and I know, anytime you increase the cost of asphalt, it's kind of counterintuitive because it's it's mm-hmm. a low, dirty material made with recycled products anyway. So, you know, this, this study was really cool. And, you know, we've been saying it forever. And hopefully a lot of people listening to the show have been saying it forever. We just need to pay more stuff with concrete. You know, it's a big initiative. Right now with the NRMCA, they're talking about paving nonstop and talking about how it's not only is a superior material to asphalt, but it no longer costs more. And I think Joey knows a little more about that. I mean, that paving's his background. What do you know about that, Joey? Yeah, especially uh, when you get into like RCC, roller compacted concrete, um, it's placed very similar to asphalt. As in they use basically the same equipment to place a roller compacted concrete as they do asphalt. Uh, they use dump trucks to deliver it. It's placed with an asphalt paver um, and they, they roll it, you know, with a roller. So the the only main, the main difference would be probably labor. I would say there's not as much labor with concrete as there would be asphalt because you guys know you see a asphalt paving going on uh, on a road. There's 20 guys standing around there where, you know, roller compacted concrete or even slip form paving. They're all on machines. There's not much labor going on. So I think that's a big difference. And also the material cost. If um, if the machine and equipment cost is the same, then it, it gets down to material cost and roller compacted concrete's got to be getting down there pretty cheap. Yeah. Well, it didn't used to. I mean, the prevailing sentiment uh, 10 to 15 years ago was that the concrete paving was about 2.5 times more expensive than asphalt paving. And so when these projects would be on state level and they'd be up, say, okay, which one are we going to do? Are we going to do the asphalt that needs to be repaved every five to seven years? Or are we going to do the concrete that needs to be redone every 20 years? Uh, well, long term, the concrete makes total sense. But unfortunately, we're doing budgeting cycles with governors, and the governor's terms are limited. And so they've only got so much money in their bankrupt estates, and they say, well, I'm going to go with the cheaper option. So time and time again, when these projects come up, people are choosing asphalt. But now what the NRMCA is saying is that that information is old. That was 10, 15 years ago. Now we've got new methods. Joey just talked about RCC. we got new methods. We need we reanalyze this, and the costs at startup are almost the same and long term you still got the massive durability benefits with concrete yeah no 100 percent. and that's that's what drew me to this this article and i'm, I'm going to read verbatim don't like to do this all the time but um, basically they come out in the article and say just start moving your paving projects to concrete but you say say they say verbatim yet another way is to switch from asphalt pavement services to concrete which has a higher initial cost but is more durable as you said, leading to equal or lower total life cycle costs. Um, and then they go on to say many road services in the northern U.S. states already use concrete, but asphalt is more prevalent in the south. There it makes even more of a difference because the asphalt is especially subject to deflection in hot weather. 
and they even went on to say just upgrading the road services in Texas alone could make a significant impact because of the state's large network of roads and how hot it gets. And not that state alone, but, you know, you take that all the way to Southern California, all the way east, you know, you know through Alabama and Florida. You know, you look at road temperatures that are constantly 120, 130 degrees during the day and how much deflection that they probably endure because that asphalt is, is just so soft. Yeah, well, growing up, the first time I learned about that was uh, there were some gnarly intersections uh, where I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. They were just rocky, rutted out. <laughs> Shaped like car. a W. Yeah, 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 yeah. And your car is just boom, 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 going up to the stoplight. Like, what in the world is this? Like, oh, heavy tractor trailers are pulling up and they're hitting their brakes. And because it's so hot on that asphalt surface, it's actually molding it and rolling it and grooving it. And they have to come to and redo these intersections. So what states started doing is they started pouring concrete just in the intersection. So right. it would look like a concrete plus sign at this four-way stop, and then everything else was asphalt because they know that the concrete is that much more durable because of the harder surface, but the asphalt is that much cheaper when you're looking mm-hmm. at these short-term budget items, yeah. which is how the cities and the states, unfortunately, are looking at it. Yeah, you can yeah. tell a difference, too, when um, you're standing on it. I remember at the old job, and we'd be paving, and uh, if I stood around on a concrete slab all day, my knees would kill me. And you could literally tell a difference from when you stepped off of a concrete slab onto some asphalt there was just more, uh, there wasn't much, but there was just enough cushion there that you could just feel, you know, just feel the energy leaving, leaving your foot and going through the asphalt because it was so much softer. Part of that climate benefit you were looking at, was it talking about the heat that's generated off of a light surface versus a dark surface? No, that's an interesting point, but it, it didn't, it didn't say anything about building heat in one source more so than the other. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't sure. I mean, we hear a lot of talk in these uh, city projects where they're, you know, white coating the roofs. So they're turning these black tar roofs into white roofs. And so I wonder if there's a difference between a gray concrete and a black tar asphalt. Yeah, it's interesting. But you can get deep into the weeds on that stuff, too, because then you have to compare the carbon emissions from concrete paving versus the asphalt paving. And well, I don't know if they are, but I mean, they're probably close to the same. I remember hearing about white topping uh, back in college, uh, and I remember there was a pretty lengthy discussion about white topping and how they put it on the tops of buildings in these big metro areas just because of the heat reflection coming off the top instead of, you know, the black tar or whatever on top of buildings. Yeah, that still goes on now. Uh, they get leak credits for now. Mm-hmm. If you uh, build your building, make sure you got that and uh they put these uh, gardens and stuff on top that helps cool everything off and and you know pulling that carbon dioxide into the plants and release it into oxygen so they're trying all kinds of stuff i was just curious of this study from mit which talking about reducing carbon emissions over the long term and then also improving the durability of the roads at the same time it was also taking into account the heat that's generated off these asphalt roads compared to what would be generated off of a concrete road yeah, that's that's an interesting viewpoint for sure. You were talking about your article there, Josh, about sustainability and kind of the green side of things for concrete. And uh, that leads us into what I found out that was pretty interesting in this article here. It has to do with sustainability 
in concrete that's used for coastlines. And we all know if you just dump concrete in the ocean, it's not really good for anything. And they kind of go into, not to go into very much detail in this long article, but they essentially said there's there's things we can do to or with concrete for these coastlines that would benefit or not have an effect on marine biology in the area. An example they had was there's a bridge in Hong Kong, and I didn't even try to write it down or pronounce the name. (laughs) (laughs) So so we'll just just say it's a big, long, 34-mile-long bridge in Hong Kong with a name that I cannot pronounce. And so this bridge used over 1 million tons of concrete, and it used so much concrete and there was so much stuff going in the water during the construction of this bridge that there was a, uh, there was a subspecies of dolphin, you know, like flipper, the flipper kind of dolphin, not the fish dolphin. It decreased the population around the, of this dolphin around the bridge, 60%. So in that region where they built that bridge, there were dead dolphins just like washing up on the shoreline. And so mm. it kind of got them thinking about what concrete is doing to, to these, uh, to the water that they're putting it in. And it got them, it got people to thinking about how much coastline in the world is con- is made up of concrete, and not just not necessarily like a concrete beach, but just where's there where there's development and there's seawalls and there's all kinds of stuff going on right by the ocean. And they talk about how China, 60% of its coast is concrete, 40% of it is like non-concrete. I don't know, it's it's it was amazing to me. Uh, just thinking about how much uh, development is development's going on in that country. And then in the U.S. alone, we got 14,000 miles of concrete coastline. And so. But but that also takes into account like shipping ports and stuff yeah, like harbors, that. Yeah. Yeah, harbors, yeah, ports. yeah. I would say that it's either concrete or it's a natural shoreline. I mean, I would go so far as to say that because yeah. I, I couldn't think of any other material or any other situation where there would be something else there that's not concrete or natural shoreline. So, miles long. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, that's a lot. And so they also go into how much, you know, concrete is used all over the world and how much of an effect that it's having on the environment. It's the most widely used uh, uh, product in the world, you know, building, building product in the world for every person in the world. This said it's an article for every person in the world. There's three tons of concrete being used every year. And 8% of humanity's carbon footprint comes from the concrete industry. And I'm, I don't yeah. know if that, I guess they're including, you know, cement production, uh, anything to do with aggregates, admixtures and whatever else. So I don't know. That was pretty interesting. So what they're, what they're thinking about doing is uh, there's a company out there and I did, they didn't get the name of the company, but they make a product called, they call it E-Concrete, E-C-O, you know, all caps and N-C-R-E-T-E. And what it does, it produces bio-enhancing uh, concrete products that's intended to protect and rejuvenate coastlines. What uh, what consists of this E-Concrete? It's made with, bi- with pretty much 100% byproducts or res- and or recycled materials. <clears throat> For their cementitious, they don't use cement. They use a... Uh, the 70% of this mix consists of slag, which we, those of us in the industry know is a byproduct of metal and things like that. And they use this because it has such a high chloride resistance, which is really good for seawater. And on top of all that, they're going to add what they call eco tiles to the surface of this concrete. When I was reading the article, it made, it really made sense. Um, when you just pour like a smooth concrete slab, it's just that it's just a smooth slab and 
for marine organisms, it's kind of hard for them to latch onto that. So when you just sink a piece of concrete that's smooth on all sides, you don't really have as many barnacles or the little, you know, any other little organisms under the water that can latch onto that. And it made sense too, because even here with uh, habitat management, you know, uh, just on land, if you have just a smooth mode field or field of grass, it's not really going to benefit anything. You need shrubs and you need trees and you need a whole mixture of things going on on that on that piece of earth for anything to benefit from it and it's the same thing underwater so what they do with these eco tiles they put these eco tiles on the surface of the concrete and it creates uh quote unquote more habitat a more more sustainable environment for marine organisms so it has ridges and it's got grooves and pockets and things like that so on the existing concrete that's underwater they can just stick these things on there and it provides habitat for all this stuff so that's uh, that's kind of what they're getting at, and they're also use they're also creating. And Paul and Josh, you you guys remember when um, I think it was in Australia they had those big jack looking products made out of concrete Acro- on the shoreline. Acropodes. Acropodes, and uh, those would be used for I guess erosion. Uh, yeah, yeah they're uh, uh, seawater breaks. Mm-hmm. So if you're building a port, a new port that hadn't been done before. You, you set those and that's the barrier between uh, the earth uh, or the ground that you're going to be working on and the seawater itself. So it's, it's mm-hmm. the break. Between that. Yeah. So they're using things like that and just similar products um, for these coast, these concrete coastlines. And those essentially serve as shelter for, you know, crabs and shellfish and small bait fish. And it, it creates habitat around these places. Yeah. It's like an artificial reef. They're going out and they're building artificial reefs with uh, mm-hmm. the concrete surfaces. That's awesome. Yeah, I think Joe said eight percent is what concrete industry uh, delivers as far as uh, CO2 mm-hmm. uh, emissions. So eight percent of all the emissions because of concrete. I feel like five percent of that is the cement. Right. So then mm-hmm. the aggregates play a part and the concrete plays a part. But five percent of that is cement. And so it, it goes back to episode one. We talked with Ryan Betts about Portland limestone cement. You can cut that 5%. You can cut that by 10%. You know, you start getting closer. And so if you cut that 5% by 10%, so you get a half a percent gain, that's the entire gain you're talking about in that MIT study. Right. Just by switching to the Portland limestone cement. So, you know, I think these things are going to gain traction the things you talked about josh portland limestone cement and it's really cool uh, to hear that somebody's uh, taking it underwater and restoring some of these ocean habitats and making them better through concrete yeah and uh, the thing about coastlines too there's so i mean there's only so many there's only so many miles of coastline uh versus you know just look at america you got only so many miles on the west coast so many miles on the east and gulf coast and uh, that's not a whole lot. And if something happens to all of that, then, you know, those habitats and those areas are going to be devoid of, uh, you know, certain species for, for however long, decades, if not forever. Yeah, well, good stuff, guys. I really enjoy this section uh, of the show where we get to, you know, talk shop and talk about the things that we see just passing through, scrolling the Internet, um, talking to other people within the industry. Uh, these kind of topics are, are certainly interesting to me. Hopefully they are to our audience as well. But uh, transitioning to the next section here, uh, we're going to bring in our guest. Our guest is 
Jim Casilio today. He is the Director of Technical Services for the Pennsylvania Aggregates and Concrete Association. And we're going to jump right into the conversation here. Paul is going to be uh, conducting the interview with Jim directly. Joey and I will chime in from time to time. But uh, the conversation is a good one. Uh, Jim has a lot of experience, as we talked about earlier in the show. We kind of touched on uh, who Jim is and what he does. And we're going to get into all types of uh, different conversation topics, uh, things that are very interesting. And, and Jim's a great guy. He's a great guest. Um, and he can take a conversation and just roll with it. And the amount of information you can learn from Jim just by listening is pretty incredible. So without further ado, this is our guest for episode three of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is Jim Casilio. We're ready to talk about the building code legislation. We're exciting. It's the same, addressing the same thing on a much one step lower level. You know, the, the legislation is going to require them to provide the curing box and require them to do automated curing and make it available to us without hands on. So and I don't have to trace across two states to break cores then what they were doing the testing. Right. Like I just had to do the past two days. All right. Well, let's jump right into that. So. You're talking about making it mandatory for these people to be ACI grade one, uh, C39 strength test certified. Uh, are these testing labs not doing that already? With here's, the, the here's, if you read the code, and ACI, by the building code, I mean ACI 318 version 14, which is Pennsylvania on. So if we adopt that, we'll only be six years behind the ACI code. But don't get me started. That's a whole other podcast. The, uh, <laughs> um, so... Uh, it says, if you read that, that the technicians making the, the tests must be certified uh, a, a, acceptable to the building code official and licensed design professional. And then right next to the code is a commentary. They say ACI um, grade one field technician or equivalent. All right. Now, that or equivalent is the testing labs say, well, we have our own training program that's equivalent, which is that's horse crap. You know, they, they just don't. But they say that they do when they get away with it. So the people out there doing the job properly with the trained guys are losing out because it's a low bid kind of market, losing out to the guys who are coming in and doing this here. And then you get stuck like we just got done here now. Um, cylinders that do not represent the in-play strength of the of the concrete. The producers is guilty and proven innocent. And even if he proved himself innocent, they still have our money. So good luck trying to get that. You know, well, well if you if didn't delay them an hour, they'll say, oh, we're going to backcharge you for that. Well, all the extra testing. Well, you know, so it is a bit of a loophole. What this what this amendment does is bring it right on the forefront, says to Mr. Building Official and Licensed Design Professional, minimum requirements. If your inspectors and technicians have this certification, they're good to go. All right. So it brings it right out and gets kind of rid of the ambiguous language and puts it in the forefront. So there's no ifs, ands or buts, you know. Got to make it simple. Got to make it easy to find, and it's not in the code right now. Right. Well, when it comes to like strength testing, uh, not not to be too overly negative or anything, but uh, you could train a monkey to break cylinder. Uh, but you went through something that was a little bit different this week. Could you tell mm -hmm. us, tell the team here and the people listening, uh, the experience you had with these cores? Sure. Um, so what we have is a testing agency hired to do a project in, let's say, northern, northeastern Pennsylvania, about an hour and away from north of Harrisburg, a parking garage being built. And so it was very warm here in July and August. And initially their cylinder curing was 
get a cooler out there and put the cylinders in and close the lid up and come back the next day and take it out. And well, once we started, the producer started getting breaks back and in end July, he kind of, you know, called them on that. And in the meantime, then they put water in it, then they put high lows in it. And so the breaks have been better. But you have concrete board from late June up until July. Now it's coming to 28 day breaks come and you got great seven day results, but you almost no strength gain seven to 28 days, say you're getting 3,400, 3,500 in seven days, 3,800, 3,928 days. It's a classic case of the concrete being burned out. Now, this is 4,000 and 5,000 mix specified with straight cement, no pozzolans on it, 7% air, um, big walls, big columns, all right? So they're generating enough heat on their own besides being warm. A great mix for October and September, but you know, late September, October, November, but July, not so good. Yeah, so, the, yeah, so they're they're low. All right, so now there's coring. So last week there were 15 or so cores pulled, uh, nine of them to be tested by the testing lab, and the producer's cement supplier took four on his own to break them and do petrography be done as companion cores. So we go down to break the cores at the lab yesterday and the cores are all there and to get ready they're going to start cut them off like that and i says how are we going to cap the cores and he says we're not we're going to use neoprene pads i says well that's great well the rule in in c42 astm c42 for the cores is that the steel rings and the retainer rings can be no greater than 1.07 percent times the diameter of the core this is a four inch core but it's a four inch od diameter so the core is like just under three and three quarters ID. Very common because core drillers, you know, worry about the outside of the hole. I could drill a four inch hole, you got a four inch hole OD on it. Yeah. Right? So what we found out, those retaining rings weren't ready to go. Now, if we hadn't been there and called that question, those cores would have got broken or tested uh, according to that. And the results were, eh, maybe not so good. So we talked to lab and and the guys did a good job and they said, hey, our lab, you know, an hour and a half or an away from us has the ability to cap the cores. We went down there. We got the cores capped today. They did it right. You know, just as you expect to see, the plate was warm. The sulfur capping compound was good. The young man was doing that. Not his first time sulfur capping compound. Nice thin cores. As soon as he brought the cores out, he checked for perpendicularity, had the right type of gauge right there. He was doing the right thing, so felt really good about that capping. We came back and broke them this afternoon, and we're all in good shape. You know, So the cores broke way higher than the cylinders. Again, a good day for the producer. He's relieved because he was sweating out. The job was shut down You know, based, based on, on the end because they don't want to put further stuff on top of stuff they might have to take out. And, and so here it is. And but the, the, the problem was they were just going to go and just do it without any watching whether they're meeting the tolerance on the cores. And um, that could have been very costly for my producer on top of the pain he's already suffering from having low cylinder breaks that really are not a true measure of his concrete. So how long is it until we get to a point where we take all those variables out of it. We take out the variables of making the cylinders, storing them properly, curing them properly, and then breaking them properly. Well, in this case, you're breaking cores, not cylinders, but still uh, uh, the same concept, all these variables. And why are we, when are we going to move from that to link technology to this job? So you get embedded probes that are going to you know, be able to use the maturity method and send the information to an app 
and that gets you know there's a repository for the state that everybody can access well i don't think i don't think maturity is going to to replace it anytime soon because of the specifics of marrying maturity to actual breaks now maturity is wonderful for a large job site if you know when you can move ahead but acceptance on maturity probably not going to see that commonplace too soon but there is technology we can use to eliminate some of that. And the legislation we had talked about is, is going to require it. You saw the demonstration, Paul, that we did with that, with that device from Geotech that, you know, everybody in that room could read what happened on that pretend curing box we made up for the previous 48 hours, you know. And the probe costs $95 and has two years of battery life and the software is free. Now, they're just one of many manufacturers who are making these um, devices that are available and and so what's what we're talking about everybody should have it and that's the hands-free monitoring that no one has to put them in maximometer in and read them in maximometer this thing takes the readings all the time and and there's the data available for everybody to see that would be a huge step on that because it's purely monitoring initial conditions of first 24 hours life of a cylinder are so much more important than the than rest of the 27 days on it and proven time and time again and here we went through it again well, well week, you're giving that talk in this demonstration to uh, the the concrete guys and agri guys and the cement guys they're in that room but to me the way this change gets made is actually through the testing companies they should be adopting this and, and promoting this to solidify the results and move this industry forward do you agree they're good. They're going to be the ultimate users of it, and yeah. they're going and to well, it's going to be a combination of them wanting to do the right thing and and bring pressure from the industry, establishing the standard. The bar is here. We got to just raise that bar a little bit and inspect that. Well, let's say who's losing in this situation. In the situation we have here now, the concrete contractor, he doesn't know whether he can build on top of it. The CM, he's got a mess on his hands. The architect and licensed design professional, they're sitting there, well, what numbers do we believe? The owner's paying for all this, and at the bottom of the run, the concrete complier is sweating bullets, and the poor guy can't sleep that night. The only person that's benefiting in this process is a testing agency that's low bidding it, and hey, whatever, whatever, we're doing it. We don't have to do it. Also, the loser in this, too, are the testing agencies that are doing it the right way coming up with the automated curing boxes, doing the right thing. They're the losers in this process here. We've got to support them and put pressure on this industry to raise the bar across the industry through the professionals, through the contractors, through the suppliers, through the concrete contractors. Everybody's got to get on board and say, we, we're just not going to accept this anymore. The problems happen in the summer and the problems happen in the winter in our neck of the woods. You know, Other yeah. areas of the country, different problems, but everybody's going through this. Uh, this is a nationwide issue, and it's unfortunately going from bad to to worse. Uh, you know, it it just is, and I've seen that over my career. Well, with the business side of it that we're in, with the product that we're always using, uh, we're a disruptive technology. So when I see other disruptive technologies, that's right where my mind goes: is who's the winner and who's the loser? And you outline kind of who's being harmed right now with the current system. And, and how we can lift those standards and, and a rising tide is, can lift all boats in this situation. But I looked at that probe that you showed us in, in the app and higher bank access, and I'm thinking that's a disruptive technology 
to these testing labs because right now all these projects are beholden to the labs. The labs are taking the cylinders, the labs are curing everything, the labs are giving you numbers. And as Jim just said, uh, everybody's waiting. You're waiting on those numbers. But if everybody has access to the numbers through this technology, then that won't be the case. So if I'm a testing lab, I would see this, this disruptive technology and I would be on it like white on rice and I would be spending the next year right now doing companion tests. And so I'd be doing all the normal stuff while I have the probes in there. And mm-hmm. I'd be getting these correlations and make sure this stuff checking out. And then when I'm confident in that, I would start writing ASTMs for it. Saying, oh, well, here's the procedures, exactly where we need to place these, place these things. These are the conditions. These are the products you can use. And, and define those things. And that's a four-year process, if you're lucky. So then... Then five years from now, you're the testing lab that's ahead of the game. You've got a better technology. You wrote the specs and potentially can, you're saying it's a low bid thing, but when you're that much better and that much more connected, I think you could maybe charge a premium. And the testing labs, there are a segment of the market where there are CMs and, and repeat owners who are working with certain testing agencies because they are doing the right thing. They're going at extra they're not losing any time and effort. They know they can count on their numbers. But but yet again, there's still enough critical mass out there that unfortunately, they're the exception to the rule. And But those are the guys we need to support. And there's a few of them who are like you, your company, Paul, who are members of our of, of the association who are, are all for that and all, and all behind this. So it, well, it, this is a process. You know, speaking of the association, uh, take a moment. And, and tell the people who it is you're working for and what your role is. Sure. Um, uh, the association that we talked about is the Pennsylvania Aggregate and Concrete Association. Um, uh, director of Technical Services for that. Uh, we represent the aggregate and concrete producers and cement producers of, of Pennsylvania. There is uh, five of us here on staff. Uh, my counterpart who does regulatory affairs is Josie Gasky. You know, I spend a lot of quality time with the Department of Transportation. She spends a lot of quality time with the Department of Environmental Resources. Um, our, our cement producers and our quarries are extremely right closely regulated by Department of Environmental Protection. All the permits come from them. And so it's very it's matters what the rules are. The DEP has on that matters to our producers greatly. Um, and we also have uh, Ken Crank is our director of promotion, uh, concrete promotion and also working with me on the building codes. Uh, he's also in charge of our certification program. Ken runs all, all of our certification programs. We're probably five to 700 people a year that we run through our ACI concrete field testing, concrete um, flat work finisher, concrete strength testing program. And also now we started, and we wanna talk about the NRMCA exterior flat work finisher program. We're the third state to bring that to the local level. And that's a, a, a different tenure in that program. And it's something that I think valuable for all the producers and everybody in industry out there. And then um, besides that, uh, Callie Klein is our director of events and education. Uh, she's, our, she's been with the association for quite some time. And we're all led by Peter Vlahos. <clears throat> Peter came from work with uh, NRMCA and uh, the uh, Con Ag, Con Expo, and he's been here as our president in Pennsylvania here for about 12 years now. Uh, offices in Harrisburg. Uh, Ken and I work out of our homes remotely, and then 
in March, the rest of the world joined us working from home. You know, I wish you guys would all go back to work at the office and leave us people at home back to peace and quiet. But, you know, I don't <laughs> think that's happening anytime soon. So, um, hey, it's not bad working at home until your significant other has to work at home, too. Then it's a whole nother ballgame. Yeah, you guys with, with people with young kids, I feel for you during this time. You know, I, I absolutely do. So um, that that's the five of us. And um, it's my privilege to represent the, the producers after being one for most of my career. Um, most of my career spent in the family concrete business. Uh, Frank Casolio and Sons in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania started my, my grandfather in 1938. My sister and my nephew uh, currently run the business with a, lot of, with a lot of good long-term employees and business is busy. And in and, and Allentown and Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, we call it the Lehigh Valley area, which uh, we can talk about, too, was the birthplace of the cement industry in the United States. You know, the first cement kilns in the United States were built in the Lehigh Valley, and we still have four mills in operation there in the Lehigh Valley now. So, um Registered professional engineer, University of Pittsburgh graduate many, many moons ago, uh, but um, most of my life in the concrete business and a little stint doing some geotechnical engineering and foundation testing. Um, thank you for all that background. That was phenomenal. Uh, you mentioned a lot of things you wanted to talk about there, uh, but, but let's start with this. Uh, you mentioned COVID has really changed things. and. My appreciation for uh, your organization, really, I, I can't, I can't adequately say how impressed I was with the, the documents that were coming out because it was a time where nobody really knew what was going on. Or where do we go? Who can be where? What safety gear do we need? What wait? Governor Wolf in Pennsylvania saying we have to have these massive plans and these safety ambassadors. Like we need what? And so it was very murky and very Paco came out immediately. It, it couldn't have been seven days since Governor Wolf even announced that this that you needed all this paperwork. And you guys came out with a template and said, all you got to do is fill in your name on this, how many employees you have and your address and you're going to go and you're in compliance. Uh, it was phenomenal. And you said a, a member of the association actually put that together. Yeah. Um, um like all good associations, our our strength is in our members and, and our members are active and engaged. And so what happened on that when we finally got the back to work release on a, like a Friday afternoon, they said, here is the form that you need to fill out. Um, and it wasn't as easy as cut and dry like that. So one of my members took it on itself and, and I worked with him and we said, we got to get a template out to all of our producers. So because we have 70 some members and these guys would you'd have 70 some different versions of this form out there. They had to submit that form to their local PennDOT office to get approved to stay open. So you can imagine it would then get uh, reviewed by 11 different PennDOT districts. So you have so would have 70 versions reviewed by 11 different guys. Do the math. That would not be a pretty number of variations that's out there. So we tried to standardize it as quick as we could by saying, here's a, a plan. Does this sound good? fill in the details specific to your organization. And you know, most concrete plants, most quarries are pretty similar. You know, you just got to say exactly what is where and everything like that. And um, we were able to get our guys back up and running uh, as quickly as possible and safely as possible with very little 
blowback, if you want to put it, or, or stumbles along the way. A couple of people say, well, we don't like this and we don't like that, but there was no real major issues on that. After starting, it was kind of, you, you mentioned the, the government administration, and we had a really tough time following the rules that were coming out here. So um, what we ended up uh, doing was initially the rules were that the concrete industry was ruled essential and could stay open. Um, their contractors weren't, so we were allowed to, our concrete companies were allowed to be open. We weren't allowed to have customers. Yeah, I remember then, that, yeah. Then the second thing was, well, the quarries weren't allowed to be open. Well, wait a minute, what are we going to, how are we going to make concrete if the quarries aren't allowed to be open? So we're able to uh, really quickly get to the governor's office and get clarification and show them, you know, guys, this is, might be a mistake. You might want to reconsider that. And they did. And so fortunately, our, our quarries were able to open up just as quickly as our concrete plants were. Cement plants were, again, staying open all the time like that. Realize you don't just turn a cement plant off. You just don't do that. <laughs> you know, uh, so. Um, well, I give Governor Wolf a little bit of credit here. There's, this always came out with a big old list of what is or isn't a non-essential business. The problem is there were so many things that are essential they were considered non-essential and it disrupted so much stuff. And, and everything construction was halted for like seven full days. We were like one of only two states in Pennsylvania yes. that actually yes. stopped, that construction. stopped construction. Yes, that that would that would create an outrage and a lot of confusion. But then again, it was about a month within a month later, we started back up slowly but surely. And uh, now everyone's very busy um, trying to play a little bit of catch up. You're not going to we're not going to get those days back. I mean, we're just not. But, you know. Everybody's out there working as hard as we can and to make it as decent a year as we can. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, you got things turned around very quickly. It, you know, how do you, what are the channels? Like, wh how are you working to get things uh, done, those messages to the highest office in the state? And, and how does that work? Um, since um, we were able to bring our industry to, um, many tables that we've never had that before, and that's through the work of the association. Um, so, since uh, you know Peter came to Pennsylvania and revamped our association 12 years ago, we'll be able to talk to the department of PennDOT at the highest level as well as to DEP. And also forgot to mention that we have a lobbyist who's who's really our fifth staff member like that, who does a great job for us on that. And um, we were just able to. Um, attack it from above and below. You know, we were able to talk to the governor's office, the legislator, and also to the agencies that we work with, Department of Transportation, Department of Environmental Resources, and get everybody, get the message going from the top and the bottom, kind of meet in the middle and, and get a consensus on it. So it certainly wasn't one conversation. It was a lot of conversations yeah. that needed well, to happen. You know, another thing that I want to credit the organization with you know, you know, I went to the in-person meeting back in March, the last one that we had last before we had, COVID yeah. <laughs> shut everything down, moved everything online. And in it, you, you said in the agenda, you're like, hey, uh, the DOT is going to be there. They're, and he's going to be there to talk about some of these projects and some of the things that are going wrong. So everybody be prepared with whatever you want to say. And me, just my experience in the concrete industry and working with government officials, I expected this to be a, a, a total session where everybody's whining, complaining, pointing fingers and mad about everything. And I went in and I was expecting that. And although there were some some gruff people, it was very productive. The, the, the respect between the industries, the respect between the producers and even the respect they showed to that guy from the DOT 
things went much more smoothly. And I, I got to say, that's got to be a credit uh, to Peter and him coming in and changing the culture in your organization. Right. The, the important thing is, is um, what I have tried to do in agreement with this, with our leadership is, is that the Department of Transportation, they're our customer. And if we treat them a, as a customer, and they may not always be right, but they're always the customer now. But they're also us. They manage the assets for all of us. You know, and it, the transportation system is an important asset and there's never enough dollars out there to go fix what needs to be fixed. And they're doing the best they can for us. So if we've got good ideas, we've got, you know, good things that, that we think will help that benefit everybody. It benefits us. We'll try and that's the approach we made. We're then trying to be the squeaky wheel. We try to come with solutions on that and have a constructive dialogue and that starts from the top down they've got some leadership at the top of, of the department of transportation that said that's an important focus to them now it's a tough job it's a 10,000 man organization you don't move that dinosaur shift the culture of that really quickly but yet again you know they've been open to that and 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 it's been productive and so we want to m maintain the dialogue and this is not my quote, but it's from the, the deputy secretary now, executive deputy secretary, is we're not always always going to agree, but we have to have a relationship and a relationship that's strong enough to tolerate some disagreements, but yet to be able to work together productively. So hopefully that's what you saw. And I'm glad that that, you know, you verified that's what you saw. It's what we're trying to do. Because then yeah, it is what I saw. Producers have a seat at the table then, you know, they're, the producers then could speak with the highest people in, in the department then, and, and that is our job as the association is to keep that seat at the table open for them. And then we'll work on the details once we get there. And, and you said that uh, part, part of, you know, having a better culture inside of BACA, inside of the, the state organizations, and then now you're extending that into the producers and Part of the uh, beefing up the culture is in the certification and, and testing side and performance side. And one of the things you mentioned is Pennsylvania is only the third state to adopt a training program for flat work finishers. Can you uh, go into that for me? Sure. Um, again, it was you know, necessity, the mother of invention. Uh, we had a rash of scaling in northeastern Pennsylvania a couple winters ago. And that was when we were on our old ASR specification and when a producer lost his fly ash source and had to go to a large amount of slag cement and finishers weren't used to doing that. So we have, you know, a few thousand yards covered over about half a dozen companies, maybe 12 projects or so where we had a lot of scaling. Um, and, and this is concrete that were high profile. And so everybody ended up with, with a lot of egg on the face. Um, by that spring, we had a solution, but, you know, now the contractors were there. Oh, what do we do about all this bad concrete out there? Municipalities have it down. This is on public work. It was on private work. It was on PennDOT jobs. It was jobs done to the PennDOT specification. It was pretty widespread. So during one of these meetings, um, uh, Henry Preninger with uh, Lafarge, who's out of the, the Baltimore area, came up and attended one of the meetings and says, we developed a program working with um, – Delaware and Maryland, where um, we certify the flat work finishers. Now, opposed to being an ACI uh, certified concrete finisher, that's a pretty intense program. It's mostly geared towards buildings. This is a much more limited in scope and completely or strictly addresses the limitations and what you need to do to finish exterior concrete, 
make it durable to freezing and thawing conditions and reduce the scaling. Um, it is a written test and a performance test, but it is a written test that every finisher should be able to pass. But unlike the ACI program, it has a performance test. And the performance test is we set up little um, blocks for them to pour. And then after we do the written test in the morning, we break them up in groups of three or four and we back up a concrete truck and there's a 13-step checklist for them to place and finish it. Um, now, we're not really that concerned about the 13 steps and the guys paying attention in the morning, they'll get them, but it is an education opportunity. It's a case for them to discuss. It's also an opportunity for them to work with finishers from other companies. We ask a lot of our finishers, but we give them very little in training. Their training of a concrete finisher mostly is, is the guy next to you yelling at you and how well he yells at you is a quality of training <laughs> that you get. Um, so, but yet we, we, you know, it, it exposes our vulnerability. As a ready mix producer, you do not produce a finished product. It is up for your customer to make it into a finished product, just like the testing agency is up for them to test it right. That is our vulnerability. We're, our material looks as good as they make it look good, and we ask a lot. So this course we're very excited about because all of us in the concrete industry have been out on residential projects where you have a disappointed homeowner and a disappointed owner, and you're stuck in the middle between the owner and your customer on the other side. You know the finishing and the curing, which is was our problem up in Northeast Pennsylvania, both finishing and curing was needed where it should be, and then you got to make these two meet in the middle while still retaining the, 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 home, the customer and, and, and trying to help the homeowner out because they didn't meet their expectations. And there's nothing worse than that, and somebody just spent all that money and it didn't meet their expectations the whole industry gets this. And one of the quotes we use in this program is, is it's not an industry, it's not a concrete producer problem, it's not a finisher problem, it's not a specifier problem, it's an industry problem. And we better work on this and solve this together or we're all gonna end up with more bad situations that none of us want. So it's the NRMC finishers, nice, time, nice thing about it, it's a lifetime certification. So as long as you really don't screw things up badly, you go through the course once, you're certified for life. And uh, we think it's a way of addressing not only our specific problem we had, but also for you know improving equality. So the rules going to be put in place are going to require all finishers on PennDOT projects to have this or the ACI certification by the end of 2021. So that's a lot of finishers that we're going to put through this process. And we also developed a training module for construction inspectors to know <laughs> intermediate curing and, and the importance of final curing and everything like that because you know the big key on this is and especially with the SEMs is curing 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 so we hit that really hard in the program well it's interesting the name of this podcast is born out of the same phenomenon you know it's the add 10 gallons concrete podcast because we noticed in this industry no matter how much time effort money that we put into concrete technology or that the additive company puts into concrete technology or how much uh, uh, mixed design knowledge the concrete producer put into it. When that truck shows up, the dude flashes his hands and he has 10 gallons of water. All that money and, and knowledge is it's gone. It's wasted. It's over. Well, well, I, love the pro, I love the title of the podcast. Um, I have been 
instructed to do that. And, and my role as a ready mix concrete producer, even before I pulled the truck in, I've had that flashed at me <laughs> numerous times. <laughs> exactly. All right. So that's why I love that everybody. And if you haven't seen that, you haven't driven a mixer truck long enough because that <laughs> is everybody knows that. And I love, love the title of the podcast on that. But, you know, that brings me something I wanted to say and follow up on some on something from your first podcast when you talked about the industry slow to accept change and the conservative mm-hmm. nature of the industry. And that I'm going to say that's a maybe a yes and a no comment on that. But um, uh, we, there, there is a bit of a reason for that. And we all have a story or two to tell that gets us on that. And I've got a couple. And the first one is, is called a product called Pyramid. And the second one is about slag cement. Now, Pyramid was a product produced and marketed by one of the cement companies that is no longer in existence got absorbed by another cement company. But its claim to fame was rapid setting high strength. And their advertisement, very flashy advertisement, was done with the plane could take off from Los Angeles and you could pour the concrete when the plane takes off and it can land on in New York City three hours later. That's how strong we gain, gain our strength. So they marketed it heavy. And we say, okay, we'll give it a try. Well, we poured a little bit on our driveway at a ready mix concrete plant. So I always like to be conservative and try a little bit. That was a bugger to work with. And sure enough, it's set quick and sure enough, it's strength good. But it also did something else. Um, within about four or five months, you have never seen this much cracking anywhere on it. I mean, it just cracked a tremendous amount to the point that it ended up being replaced in a couple of years. In, in the meantime, this was out and widely knowledge within the industry, but this was promoted by a large company, you know, with a lot of, of good science technically behind it and done with a huge marketing campaign. And so, you know, trust me, and that's, this is many, many years ago. I, I remember that, you know, so no, I doubt remember. So when anybody comes, you know, this is our reluctance, a new product, everybody has a story like that. And, and the second one is the widespread use of slag cement. Now, that was available in the 70s, but not that widely used. And in our area, in Pennsylvania, when the cement company started manufacturing and marketed, um, and that's when it really got widely used, late 80s, early 90s. And um, that got adapted very quickly into the marketplace. Um, and uh, I, I was had the opportunity to start using it and and decided to use it at a, at a replacement rate I thought was conservative that would give me some benefits on like that. And it did. I was very pleased with how it worked. I'd improved my concrete. Um, but there was also a temptation back in then, because this was a grade 120 slag, widely available, cost was good, that you could really, if you wanted to, drop your total cementitious of your mixes and still be well within the strength that you needed. Now, if you upped your percentage of replacements, you could even drop your total cementitious even more. I decided not to do that. Some of my competition did not. And within a year or two, they had a lot of scaling on a lot of commercial jobs because the finishers weren't used to finish it. Because when you get high percentages, like I said, it finishes differently. The finishability window, it gets extended. It moves out a little bit here like that. And when you think it's time to go, it may not be time to go. Top's more susceptible to dry out before the bottom sets. You're more easy to jump the slab and it's more susceptible curing. Now, we know that was the issue, but what happened was construction managers, one in particular, took slag cement and he made that his personal mission in life to go around to all the specifiers that he knew. And he got that 
omitted from specifications. Now, that seems crazy in this day and age <laughs> that people would not do that. But but he did because he was blaming the material because it was a misapplication of the material, a good product that uh, or the right application and the right percentage became a bad product in other people's hands and got a bad name. So there you have two stories of why you may think that the industry being slow to change and these things happen. And there's also one of the good, the best parts about our industry is, and I'm going to use the expression, we are inbred elephants. And I mean that in the most complimentary way I can say Please, that. please explain. Right. <laughs> because it's a small industry. Um, we all share customers. We all share vendors. We all share suppliers. We have some kind of relationship with each other, hence the, the inbred. And with the pyramid story and the slag cement story, it's obvious we forget nothing. So, you know, these things, they last a generation and they are they die a slow death. So hence the term inbred elephants. But the nice part about that is if you're the type of person selling the product in the right way, standing behind the right product, working with a producer, working within the industry, you'll build that level of respect and credibility that they'll remember you and it, your, your one success builds to another, builds to another like that. This industry is full of people who are very credible, who were credible, because if you don't, you won't survive in this industry, just like the, just like the pyramid guys. You know, they you know, the guys that did that end up with some serious egg in the face. Well, you know, of course, their credibility is shot in that respect. So, you know, that that's why this is this industry. We're all in it because we like to build stuff. You know, that's the cool thing about what we do. We like to make stuff. We like to build stuff. But as the time goes on. You know, you realize that there's a lot of good, honest, hardworking people in the industry, the kind of people you enjoy doing business with. And that's why, you know, I had the opportunity and I think it's my privilege to stay in the industry and represent the industry at the level that I do. So I, I'm, you know, that, that's at least what I found over my few years of doing this. That's interesting about the pyramid story. Uh, I heard a similar story and uh, again, I got this third hand because uh, in my previous employer, I worked for Lafarge before I came here. And when I was there, you know, I was out of academia and been in the lab for a couple of years. And I didn't see anything wrong with using Medicaid. Or, I was like, why aren't more people using this? Like, this seems to solve problems. It actually makes concrete a little bit better. The, the fresh properties, the hardened properties, and, and it's solving some problems. So I didn't understand. It's like, why are we using this? Why isn't this commonplace? And you got an interesting story back, similar to your pyramid story. They said, well, we did jump on this in the 80s when it came out. It was hot stuff and everybody wanted it. Everybody was using it. It was really great. Then all of a sudden you would get loads of this stuff in and it didn't work at all. It, it was just nothing, non-reactive. And so you're Breaks are horrible. You're getting your ASR problems, whatever it is that you were using it for, for the benefit. It just wasn't happening. And what they found out was uh, the people who were taking the kaolin and making it medic kaolin through heating it up, they're calcining it. Uh, they were cooking it too long and they were taking it out of the meta phase and completely calcining it and burning it. And it was non-reactive. Oh. And that process of keeping it, between or like right around the 800, 900 degrees Celsius, so that it's that meta phase, that right. Uh it was very difficult. And when you end up with a burned product, then they, they end up burning their customers and people just dropped it. 
Yeah, just dropped it and, and tough. Good luck getting that business back once once that happens. Yeah, it's gone. And there's a lot of people now that are looking at that thinking, hey, I can make that. And it's like, whoa, you know, it's going to be twice the price of cement per ton. So you're really going to have to sell this thing. And by the way, everybody that's still around from the 80s had a bad taste in their mouth. Good luck. You know, there's another technology coming out right now that it, it's in the research. And uh, I, I don't know how quickly it's going to come to market, but we're very interested here. And that's 3D printed concrete. Uh, do you have your finger on that at all? Are you looking at that at all? What do you think about it? Um, I think that's going to be something you're going to see on the precast and the concrete product side before it gets over to the industry that I'm more familiar with. It, it is probably going to make strong inroads there first and foremost. Um, they're the guys that also wear, are going to be on the, the fancy carbon replacements, you know, the, the new technologies, the alternate cements, because they can control that in the process. You know, um, again, back, we don't make a finished product. You know, it's so important about what's going to happen out there you know, throwing the job site, but I think they're going to be the first people to adopt the, those kind of things. And I think you're going to see that a whole lot sooner than later. You think the 3D printed concrete's going to come to market sooner, like within 10 years? Oh yeah, uh, you'll you'll see that. But you'll see that first on the on the precast concrete product side, you know, where, where they have total control over the manufactured product. When you buy it from them, you're buying a finished product. You know, for, for us, it, it's it's so a raw material thing. See, because when I think about the three printed three D printed side, I actually think they're trying to take the, the precast mindset and move it outside. So in my mind, I don't see the precast guys buying these robots and three D printing in their house, their little warehouses, and putting them trucks. I see them taking that mindset into the field. And they're going to print these uh, small houses or shelters or walls or whatever it is they're going to start with. They're going to cast it in place. And so that's where I wonder whether all these mixes are going to be pre-bag mixes and mixed on site or if mm -hmm. it's going to come from ready mix plants uh, as grout mixes with the right formulations. But I think it's cast in place. OK, yeah, you may very well be right. And, and 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 see it's going to be interesting to see but again i see sooner or later you know the in construction the labor costs are so so expensive it used to be years ago that the labor was one of your least expensive things and your material was the most i think that's pretty much flipped around completely right now so if you can can not get those costs you know like the, that you'll you'll take big advantage and there is um, this thing now called the Tybot and was developed at Carnegie Mellon and, and it's been demoed here in Pennsylvania. Um, it, you set the steel on a bridge deck and it automatically comes and ties your steel together overnight um, because that's a brutal job, bend over, putting all those ties in together. Um, they developed this because, you know, CMU, Carnegie Mellon is, is one of the leaders in autonomous vehicles. It'll go out, it'll use optics to see where the rebars come together and it shoots a wire down and then it does all the ties and it runs on the same rails that the bridge finishing machine will run on. So the steel guys are out there, will set the steel I and mean, still need guys to do that, but they don't have to be bend over all day long tying all those bars together. So, um, yeah, it's out there and it is working. And that, that's amazing because when you were talking about 3D printing, I immediately started thinking about uh, from my time in the MCAA talking about these robots that that lay brick and block. And I was thinking about that all at the same time. And then Jim comes in here with a with a Carnegie Mellon, uh, you know, automatic rebar tire or whatever. I, I think robotics 
maybe in the, at the same rate or maybe even a little bit faster could be adopted you know faster than your 3d models would because you know as, as he alluded to your benefits there as it relates to your your labor costs is just through the roof you uh in our discussion but before the interview started uh we're doing our current events uh your, your article that you found was phenomenal and i'm interested to see if jim's heard about this research and to see like where Pennsylvania is, uh, if, if we're tracking with this, uh, could you speak on this article for just a second? And uh, Jim, if you'll hear Josh out for a second, and then sure. I'd love to see uh, what kind of involvement Packer may have, you know, in the direction of concrete roads versus uh, asphalt paving. Yeah, sure. The uh, um, principal research scientist, his name is Jeremy Gregory, and he works either with or at MIT. Um, with the help, you know, it's supported through the Concrete Sustainability Hub at MIT uh, with the Portland Cement Association. And basically, they came out with this study saying, you know, stiffer roadways could improve truck fuel efficiency. And talking about the benefits of moving to stiffer roadways, whether that be replacing asphalt with concrete or even making concrete roads stiffer through, you know, different gradations and and uh, things of that nature. And fibers in or whatever you do. Right, right. Stiffer roads were better and uh, concrete roads would be better uh, than asphalt roads for this. And the, the benefits to the carbon emissions that they went through, that they looked at, the models that they used, it would be uh, better for the environment. Um, and when Josh was going through the study, it's right in line with the NRMCA is pushing right now. They're really pushing concrete pavement hard. Um, is that something we do a lot of in the state of Pennsylvania? Are you guys involved with that at all? Um, that is, to answer your question, that's something that Pennsylvania does not do a lot of its roadways in concrete. We do have a certain percentage of it uh, that is done like that. Um, the, the larger roadway paving is the associate handles that. It's American Concrete Paving Association, which we work closely with and with their PA chapter on that. Um, and those are the concrete contractors placing that roadway out there. And RMCA is pushing heavily local streets and roads because that's more work, more likely for a ready mix producer that's going to, to get on that road like that. We've worked hard to get the roller compacted, a roller compacted concrete specification into Pennsylvania. And we're finding that having a lot of good applications as a sub base, um, you know, and then paving asphalt on top of it. So. Um, you stumbled upon something, Josh, that is a hot topic that's been a hot topic er ever since for the past 40 years, the competition between the, the, the two main paving industries. And, and each state has its own mix and its own, own complexity as to who does more. What has been proven, if, if there's a state that has two competitive industries, their overall cost is lower for both of them. Some states are completely uh, asphalt and their prices are, uh, they're paying for that. Where if you have a competitive industry in some of the states, Wisconsin is a great example for that. Um, their cost, unit cost for both materials is lower because of the competitive nature and the strength of both industries that can provide that on here like that. Um, there's a, a, that's a debate that's been going on and it's going to continue to go on. So I'm, I'm glad to see you guys on it. I mean, it, it is a hot topic, you know, lifestyle cost analysis and where you put the numbers and what you do on that boy, that starts out as a very simple question with a lot of good science behind it. 
the MIT Sustainability Hub is something that is only maybe 10 years old, co-funded by PCA and NRMCA. They put out a lot of groundbreaking basic research and then give it out to us, the practitioners out in the field, to, to apply it. You know, they're, they're, they're the science guys behind all this. Um, and, and it's up to do it, but they've posed a lot of great questions. And um, and to hear Jeremy Gregory speak, uh, yeah, he's a very good speaker. And um, it's a great topic and, and more to come on that subject. So yes, we, we get involved in that, uh, in the competition and, and trying to promote concrete out there. Um, but we're also the, the, the aggregate op organization too. So the nice part about that, both materials use aggregate. <laughs> Right. <laughs> we we, we went a little bit on both of them. So. Well, there's a third component, and you touched on it at the very beginning of this interview, and that is the money side of it. So what can you tell the layperson? What does the everyman need to know uh, about uh, highway transportation funding uh, on the federal level uh, or on the state level? Uh, what, what should we know? What should we, what should we be paying attention to? Uh, believing and looking forward to in that regard? Um, it, it, it's a tough time. Um, this, the recent virus has exposed the weakness, and the weakness is independency on gasoline tax, uh, which is most of the states rely on and the federal relies on. Now, spend a few months with nobody driving, every state now has a budget in their, a hole in their transportation budget, and, and it's a big one. And, and where does that money go from? And that's already against the system, at least in Pennsylvania, because we've got an enormous amount of roadways per capita that we have that already was at a deficit. There were way more projects out there than money to fix them. Um, and it, that's just the reality. And there's not a state that's not faced with that reality. And each state approaches it differently, but they also rely on, on the federal gas tax to, to come along with it. Now, there has been, and I know we're supposed to not stay political on the podcast, I'll try and go by that, but there's been talk about an infrastructure bill for that to, that to help the states and move this along. You know, there was talk and now you don't hear any talk about that, but the, the, every state has a deficit, every state has more projects to do than they have money to do them. And again, like I said before, the bad part is that we don't realize it because we're detached from it, that's something we own. We are all the owners of that. It's not the Department of Transportation that owns that. They just kind of manage that for us and try to do the best they can they for us. But that's an asset. And they're not like a regulatory agency. They're an extension of the owner. And that belongs to all of us in, in every state that we have in here. And, you know, we, we tax, we stress our transportation system an enormous amount. And, and um, you got to put that money back into it or it's going to let you down. And you see that in delays and you see that in, con you know, construction costs and traffic jams. And we're going to have to be much smarter about managing our roadways because we can't build ourselves out of this mess. You know, we do not have enough money to add the capacity to do that. So you're going to see a lot in the, like you said, the disruptive technologies, and a lot in the lane switching. Um, they're talking about Philadelphia, talking about soft shoulder running on the Schuylkill Expressway certain hours of the day where they start run on the shoulders just to add another lane. Now, the, uh, how that's all going to be done is going to be done with very high-tech monitoring and control so it's done safely. That's where you're going to see a lot of the increases come in as they try to manage traffic better on what we have because, unfortunately, we don't have enough money or land to build ourselves out of the jam that we've, we've got ourselves into on this. 
So I wish I had a, a more optimistic, upbeat subject. You want to talk about something more fun or what? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's. Uh, that leads us in. Okay, something fun. What's the craziest thing that you can remember seeing that, that you're able to talk about? Well, give us a good story from back in the day. Good story from back in the day. Um, like something crazy uh, you saw on a job. Or- something right, right. And this is is not great funny, but it but it is is kind of interesting. Um, Fourth of July, um, hot Fourth of July, and we were busy. It was a Friday before the Fourth of July, coming into a three-day weekend. So, a real, real busy day. It's hot, and 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 so it was middle of the afternoon, and we're finishing up a state job. And Batchman calls me up and says, "Oh, you got to take a look at this load. It's ringing wet, and it was going out to the state, and it really was seeking its own level, kind of. You know, it looked like a drum full of water in a central mix plant. So." My God, what's happening? And I turned around on the wall and I looked and his admixture vial for retarder was completely full so uh, of admixture. So obviously it got overdosed on retarder. Well, stopped everything down. We threw that load away, went and found that we had just gotten a delivery of retarder. And during the delivery process, the delivery guy somehow hit the wiring on the control mechanism that the admixture pump just started pumping retarder in. So the whole load got nothing but retarder. Now, sent that truck to the reclaimer, okay, wash the mixer out. Well, we lost a little time, but not the end of the world, yada, yada, so life goes on. We were able to fix the controls back in business in a short period of time. So now that's Friday afternoon. We're not back to work till Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning, I call from a, from a homeowner who we sent a couple yards of concrete to and said, hey, that concrete I got from you on Friday didn't set up. Now this is Tuesday, and I go, you got to be kidding me. He says, no, no, it didn't set up at all. I says, I'll be right over. I got to see this. And sure enough, I went over and this guy had built an addition on his house and we poured a foundation, a little slab for he was going to put a chimney and a fireplace on like that. And it that concrete as if wet as you, you just placed it. It was completely wet and everything like that. I figured out oh, what the heck's going on. So I go back to the plant. Now, these are the old days when all you had was a a dot matrix printer, and at the end of the day, you used to press a button on your batch plan, and it printed out a record of everything that you did that day. Every batch came out in mass, whether you wanted it or not. So I'm going back, I'm pulling out delivery tickets, and everything like that. His load was right before the load that we caught with the retarder. So obviously, he got a little bit of retarder in it. So I called the guy up, and I said, I got some good news, and I got some bad news for you. And I said, the bad news is I haven't a clue when that concrete's going to set up. The good news is when it does, it's going to be really, really strong. So <laughs> cover it up with a piece of plastic, keep it from drying out. And sure enough, a week later, he was building his chimney on top of it. But, you know, those those things happen, you know, uh, things like that. So That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Josh, I saw you some scribbling some notes over there. You got anything for, I guess? No, no I, I, uh, I actually wrote down the name of um, of your family company. And uh, that way I'm, I'm a little bit for, more familiar with it. I, I get around the Lehigh Valley area every once in a while. I actually graduated from Albright in uh, Reading, okay. Pennsylvania. So, yeah, I just was jotting some notes down there. Are you born and raised in that area? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I lived there all my life except uh, four years at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, you know, Pennsylvania really should be two states, an east and a west. And I've got a, had a chance to live in both. You know, so um, that's awesome. Uh, I know. say that to, I say that to everybody. Yeah. Pennsylvania is two state because Pittsburgh area might as well be Ohio and the mm-hmm. Philadelphia area might as well be New Jersey. 
and yeah and then there's harrisburg in the middle with an identity crisis yes but you know when you say when you say new jersey that can be slightly insulting so you got to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> did you say it was a james carville quote yeah there, uh, did, did you ever hear that guy here? Did, yeah james carville uh, had a quote when he was uh, delivering a speech in pennsylvania about about the state he says uh you know pennsylvania it's uh Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Alabama in the middle. <laughs> I, I've never heard that. <laughs> yeah. You know who James Carville is? Yeah. I, yeah. I can't believe I've never heard that quote before. When I moved up here, you know, I moved from the south, from Alabama and Georgia in that area. And I come up here and I moved to Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania, the, uh, the Alabama in the middle. But when I got here, I, I said, wow. This actually reminds me of home. <laughs> rural uh, people uh, almost talk with a southern accent. You know, you know, it's a slow, small town feel, and I really enjoy it. And that's when I was introduced to the phrase "pencil tucky." Yeah. <laughs> but um, we're also a little bit of our history, you know, that we're blessed too. That you know. Like I said, we're the first region in the United States to produce cement. We've got a very strong industrial base and a very strong manufacturing base. And uh, we still, we are the number two producer of crushed stone in the United States yet. So, um, you know, we we represent the aggregate industry with a strong aggregate industry in that respect. You know, very, very technically savvy aggregate industry and a lot of huge producers. And when you don't realize, we right now have 12 underground mines producing construction aggregate from underground mines. Uh, really? across Pennsylvania. Yeah, um, um, it's it's moving that way because of the more political acceptance of an underground facility than an above ground facility, um, and it's and it's pretty like that. And again, being blessed with a lot of variation in geology, there's good and bad things that come with that. Um, you know, we have the ability to do that. So you would not know, but there are you know 12 underground mines producing construction aggregate in Pennsylvania. So a bunch of uh, like Ruman uh, Ruman Pillar. Type yep. destruction for these mm-hmm. underground mines. That's cool. Uh, Joey, you've been uh, pretty good at being quiet over there. What you got for us? Uh, thank you, Jim, for coming on. I've learned a whole lot from uh, you know being down here in Tennessee. I don't know anything about the goings on up in Pennsylvania, so everything you've said been very in, in, informative. Uh, but the one takeaway I did get from it was that your inbred elephants comment. I was really hoping it'd be a dig at Alabama football. I was very disappointed. <laughs> Sorry, that was self-reflective. So what can I say? He was saving that for like 25 minutes now. <laughs> Just to poke at me. This is because I was poking at him when we started off the sky trail. Like an hour ago. You got your back. Luckily, I can take it. Uh, speaking of college football Jim are you a college football fan Um, not that much uh, since we have these uh, two very uh, high profile professional teams uh, you know uh, in in there and uh, going to school in in Pittsburgh they were they really really love their football I mean really love their football and then and you know and and the same thing can be said about philadelphia so um and uh because uh i went to Pitt, that means i am not a penn state fan that means oh, absolutely boy. not penn state fan. <laughs> yeah i knew josh was like that but it's interesting because uh you know me and joey being from the south we're big college football guys and then one of the things i always noticed was that Pitt 
seems to ruin everybody's season. Yeah. <laughs> I go here and Josh is actually a Pitt fan. He's like, that's my team in the Big Ten, and they just ruin everybody's life. Or the ACC. They're ACC. 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 And uh, they just ruin everybody's <laughs> season. Yeah, yeah they'll, they'll be the top five, a top ten school every single year, whether they're playing 500 football or not. Or not, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they lose to James Madison one week and beat Clemson the next week. 100%. It's incredible. <laughs> it is. Well, uh, did you have anything else uh, you want no, to push, Jim? Uh, no, I don't. Mean, it's it's my, my pleasure. I, I appreciate the, the opportunity. You know, um, thank you for having me. Um, we, you know, we're so happy to have your company into our association. You know, the associate, and we talked a little and talk a little bit about association work. Um, I was very fortunate in that, you know, I didn't have a choice when I got in in the industry. You know, I was told you go to the association and meetings and you and you learn. And um, I was fortunate to be able to do that about, you know, 40 years ago when I met some people that, you know, I can still call friends today because, you know, we're in, like I said, it's we're very an interbred industry and nobody does this alone. And I mean it. I mean, it's your career. Um, to have contacts across the state that I can reach out and say, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And again, uh, you know, these are people that I've known for, for decades and, and I'm privileged to have them as my friends. And that's one of the things we can do as the association. And Paul, you noticed that our meetings we had, so we have enough time for everybody to just break up and talk to each other. Because, you know, we spend so much time in our own little industry, you don't get a chance to go out and, and see and hear what other people are doing. And and your strength may be somebody else's weakness and vice versa. And, you know, there's many a times where I reached out to a person in the central Pennsylvania, Western PA and say, hey, I got this going on. What do you got going on? And he's seeing the same or she's seeing the same or she's seeing something different. And we can put our heads together on that. And just to be able to do that, that's that's the inherent value that we have. So it becomes great for your company. You can bring stuff great back for your company, but the individual benefits to to helping your career is it, you just can't put a price tag on that. No, well said, and I, I tell you, I hope I hope to bring something to the organization. You know, in time, uh, I, I hope that I'll be able to put uh, some of my skills and knowledge uh, and add it to the collective. All right, we'll love to have you. Yeah, thank you. Well, appreciate all your time. Thanks again for coming on. Uh, Our pleasure. This, uh, Continued success with the podcast. I love what your guys are doing, and um, we'll all keep listening. All right. Sounds appreciate great. Appreciate that. Thanks, Jim. Right. Have a good evening. Good afternoon, guys. All right, that's going to do it. One last final thank you to Jim for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate all the information, insight, stories, background, everything he was able to share. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed it as well. Be on the lookout for episode four coming out shortly. And until then, take care.